We long for King Jesus' justice and his mercy throughout his earth. Uh, And then one other thing that occurred to me is, you know, no satanic establishments, no satanic Sabbaths, no satanic systems, only scriptural ones. So, moving on, kind of hard to follow. (laughs) Moving on, we are going to talk about the history of biblical Christianity and its beneficial effect on culture and society. And joining us for this will be Jason Gallagher. He is also a deacon, also a ruling elder candidate. He married his high school sweetheart, Melissa, in 2002. They have three homeschooled children. He has been the primary host of Branches Week on the Apologetics.com radio show since 2017, and he passionately and firmly believes that both apologetics and evangelism are for every Christian. You don't have to be a professional. So please welcome Jason Gallagher. Yeah. All right. Good morning. So um, I wanted just to kind of preface this talk that I'm about to give um, with the fact that it's a presuppositional approach to how you view what's going on in our world. Um, if scripture has determined things to go badly, then it's going to affect how you see the world around you. Um, but if scripture has declared that things are going to get better, then it's going to affect how you see the world around you. So I could come up here and say, hey, look at all these great things that have done in the name of Christianity throughout history. But if you believe that scripture says the opposite, it's kind of a waste of time. So The focus of my talk is going to be to ask the question of what does Scripture say? And I just found an interesting Facebook post from a friend uh, this morning, and I thought it would be relevant just to share, just to kind of see this contrast. So the post basically says this, Our world is on fire, from Cuba to Haiti to Afghanistan and China, and so much other stuff going on, wars and rumors of wars, disease and power and control. People are lovers of self and haters of God. People are more and more against biblical principles. Is this starting to sound familiar yet? This is right out of the pages of Scripture. Yes, that same book so many people don't read and deny. That same book that foretold what would take place in the last days, yet Christians continue to sit on the sidelines. Wake up, people. It's not going to get any easier. Scripture has already foretold this. So with that, I'd like to get into my talk talking about the benefits of of Christianity and God's plan um, for his people as it relates to an optimistic eschatology. So this morning, we are considering our foundations we have for hope. Uh, As we study eschatology, which is the study of final things, how things are going to unfold. And I don't think there's any real debate to be had when asking any Christian whether or not God wins ultimately in the end, but The debate seems to come into play when we ask the question of what the kingdom of God is going to look like as it unfolds historically prior to the second advent or the second coming, the return of Christ. And the position that we have taken up in this conference is that the kingdom of God will increase in its influence and magnitude through the preaching of the gospel, and evil will be progressively defeated as we move towards the coming of Christ. So in this morning's prior lectures, we looked at the failure of man historically and culturally and contemporarily. 
And my aim will be to take a look at how the influence of God's kingdom has had a beneficial effect on culture and the entire world. And I'll seek to make a positive argument for optimism in the future by looking at whether or not God has decreed his kingdom and his people living out his precepts to be a blessing on the world around us or not. And at a very surface level, the idea that God intends for his kingdom and his people to be a blessing to the world around us seems quite obvious to me, uh, based on what we know about God's character. If God is the most glorious being in all creation, then to exalt him and proclaim him and share him with the world around us should, by necessity, bring about all manner of good things, right? But if you have a pessimistic outlook on the success of God's kingdom in history, if you think that things are actually supposed to get worse and worse as time goes on, then what you're saying is that this mission that God has sent us on is meant to be a failure. We can be good soldiers who declare his truth, his glory, his grace to the ends of the earth, just as God told us to. But as time goes on, It'll result in more sin, more darkness, and more evil until the return of Christ. And in my understanding, that seems to be entirely inconsistent with the character and nature of our triune God, what we know about him from reading the scriptures. So I will make two main points. First, what does scripture say, particularly about whether or not God intends for his kingdom and his people to be a blessing to the world? Second, we'll look at history as supporting evidence that confirms the truth that has already been laid down in Scripture. So we want to start with Scripture and ask, what does God say? And then we want to look at history and ask, what do we actually see? Do they line up? And when we do that, we will find that God indeed intends for his kingdom, brought about through his people, obeying his word, to be a blessing to the world around it, both now and into the future. And I love what Aaron said is that the evil we see in the world around us is simply telling us what is left to be destroyed. And it's always good to start in the beginning. So let's start at Genesis, and we'll look uh, in Genesis chapter 3, and you know God created everything at the end of day 6. Everything was perfect and beautiful and good. And we know that Satan tempted Adam and Eve. They fell into sin and rebellion, and the whole creation is still groaning from that first sin. Yet almost immediately, God covers the nakedness of Adam and Eve and gives us a glorious promise. It is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we read the first redemptive promise in the Bible. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So as soon as creation fell into death and decay because of sin, God stepped in to begin the process of redemption where God would progressively restore all things back to their state of goodness and perfection. And this promise tells us with certainty that God's purposes in the Bible, in the world, will not be frustrated by Satan. And the entire course of the Bible is a description and fulfillment of this promise. And if we trace that thread through Scripture, as Aaron and Bob both mentioned, We know that it culminates in Christ, where the fatal blow to sin and Satan was delivered at the cross, and the victory was declared at the empty tomb when Jesus rose from the grave. And that's the big picture, the the big framework that Scripture gives us. And as we continue through Scripture, we get to Genesis 12, 
And here we see God's choosing of Abraham to be the father of his people, who he calls Israel. And in his choosing of Abraham, he also tells of his intentions for his people. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here we clearly see that God chooses to bless the entire earth, all the families, through a people, namely the children of Abraham. And we know that the Old Testament Israel were all the physical descendants of Abraham and those who joined the nation through circumcision. Today, that family is made up of all who, by faith, call upon the name of Christ and look to him for their salvation. And this nation of people, God declares, will be both blessed and a blessing to all the families of the earth. In Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 10, we read this. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that God has so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. What we see here is an acknowledgement from nations outside of Israel, right? The unbelieving world, as they observe Israel walking in obedience to God's word. It is God's design that a people, a nation who walks in his ways, will be a witness to the goodness and righteousness of God and his precepts. But it comes with a warning. Take heed, lest you forget his commandments, in which case you'll become just like the other nations who walk in lawlessness and idolatry and do whatever seems right in their own eyes. Nations will no longer look to you as having any special relationship with God when you walk in disobedience. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Pretty clear, a righteous nation will be exalted, and we know from reading Deuteronomy 4, a righteous nation is one who lives and acts in accordance with God's law. It is not a nation that does whatever seems right in their own eyes. Deuteronomy 28, as we move forward, there's a series of verses where God specifically outlines blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Now listen carefully, we'll read through this, but listen to the blessings God describes. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be 
when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain on your land in its seasons and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. What an amazing series of blessings. But you must recognize that the list of blessings is followed by a list of curses. And interestingly enough, the, verse, the blessings are covered in 15 verses, but the curses that follow, 52 verses describing the curses for disobedience. That's three times more talk about curses that we will reap if we sow the seeds of disobedience. And I highly encourage you to read that, Deuteronomy 28, as homework. So here's a question for us. Based on the scriptures we've looked at, does God intend for his people to be a to be blessed and a blessing to the world around us? Yes. Follow-up question. On what basis? On the basis of obedience. For those of you with young children who may have walked through the kids' catechism questions, one of the early questions is, what did God promise Adam in the covenant of life or the covenant of works? To reward Adam with life if he obeys and to punish Adam with death if he disobeys. So a key truth to remember as you live and walk and observe the world that we live in is that obedience leads to life, disobedience leads to death. It's simple, it makes sense. If God is the author of life, and if we follow him, it'll lead to life. If God is the author of life and we reject him, it'll lead to death. So what have we seen thus far? God has decreed for his people to be blessed and a blessing to the world around it through obedience to his word. God also decrees that disobedience will lead to curses and death. And with that being understood, when we look at the world around us and we see darkness and evil and sin, should our conclusion be that this is simply what God intended for his kingdom to produce as it goes into the world? Or should we conclude that the evil, sin, and darkness we see around us is the outworking of rebellion and disobedience in the hearts of people and the nations they live in? As Isaiah cried out in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So the reason we see bad things around us is not because God has ordained that to be the necessary result of following him, but rather because we are sinful and rebellious. And we can't just focus on the bad we see around us, but we can learn something from Isaiah as he continues in this chapter which I don't think I gave to Alan, but it continues, and it says, A seraphim flew to me, and 
with a live coal in his hand, touched my lips. And it said, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. So there's a progression. Isaiah sees the darkness in him and those around him. God cleanses him of his sin and asks, who will go? And Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. If we have been redeemed by God, let us be like Isaiah. As we see the darkness around us, let us be heartbroken, but let us be compelled to go and to do that which God has promised to bring blessing to the world. And this leads us to the New Testament. There are a few verses I want to draw our attention to, and since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it follows that God still intends for his kingdom and people to be a blessing to the world around it. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ's final command was to teach the nations to observe all things he has commanded. Following the thread of scripture we just went through, we know that a nation that is obedient to God will be exalted and will be blessed. And Jesus is simply saying, go and teach all these nations to obey what I've commanded. And what would the logical outworking be? That they would be blessed, right? So this idea of blessing is inherent in the Great Commission and the command to teach all nations to obey. It's a continuation of God using the children of Abraham to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Matthew 5:14. You are the light of the world. The city is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So simple imagery, we are called to be light and to shine in the cities where God has planted us. And what do lights do? They drive out darkness. Darkness and light cannot dwell together. When the lights are on, darkness cannot exist there. And we are called to shine through our good works so that the world may glorify our Father in heaven. And this is similar to Deuteronomy 4, where the nations would see the righteous ways of Israel and know that it was God who gave them that favor. Romans 11, 11 through 15 reads, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy... Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so continuing tracing this thread through scripture, Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham that he would be blessed and a blessing to all the families of the earth. And what Paul is saying here is that the physical nation of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, had largely rejected the Messiah. They had fallen away. They had failed to love God and follow him. But in spite of that, God's purposes are never thwarted, right? And even their fall led to riches in the form of salvation to the entire world, to all the families of the earth. 
And it's really incredible when you think about it, right? You have Old Testament Israel, who largely fell away, but a remnant remained, a small remnant. And that remnant brought salvation about to the entire world, all the Gentiles, right? It extended it to them. And now you have this entire world being saved, and it's coming all the way full circle back to Israel, that they would be provoked to jealousy by what they see God doing in this world, that they too would then be drawn back to God. It's a beautiful circle. And together these verses show that Scripture is clear both in the Old and New Testaments that God's plan is indeed to bless his people and for them to be a blessing to the world. God's precepts as they are followed by his people, taught to the nations, will drive out darkness, conquer evil, scatter God's enemies. And so Scripture is the main thrust of this argument as to why we should be optimistic about the future. Right? And with the time I have left, I want to look briefly at some historical commentary at how God's people following his precepts have been a blessing to the surrounding world. And when we see this actuality in history, it should remind us that God is simply fulfilling his promises in his word. And there's many ways that Christianity has been a blessing to the world. We could look at the rise of education and literacy, right? We could look at the scientific pursuit and the advancement of technology and how that's been a blessing in so many ways to the entire world. These are all founded in Christian principles and worldviews. You could look at the increase of human dignity and how Jesus gave value to women and children, the poor and the sick and the lame, when the world didn't. They saw those people as less valuable. All of these would be amazing to look into, but one area I wanted to look at is the development of medicine in the ancient world around the time of Christ. And we'll give some examples of how some of these things work them out practically in history. And if we look at Mark 5, I think this gives us a good context to look at this. Mark 5, 25 through 28. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd, touched his garment, for she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. So this account becomes much more realistic and practical when you consider that before the advent of Christianity, right, in this time of Christ, chronic, severe illness was viewed with suspicion and superstition. In the time of Christ, the primary source of health care was the family. People were generally not in good health. There was much ignorance when it came to Basic hygiene, which led to diarrhea and dysentery and cholera, gastroenteritis, hepatitis, leptospirosis, and typhoid. This is from John Hopkins' Healthcare in Early Christianity. And Eddie could tell you what all those things mean. <laughs> Cures were uncommon, but ongoing long care was, was kind of the norm. And if you look outside the family, physicians were the only other option. And among physicians, you would find mixed motives. Some were in it for the money, some for the exemptions granted them by the laws, some for the fame that came along with the profession, and some out of genuine love for people. But you could see how, if you don't have a family, you would be left to be at the mercy of physicians, right? Because a doctor's reputation usually related directly to their income, right? They were often 
afraid to treat severe and chronic illness for fear of looking like they don't know what they're doing and losing future business. And so you have this woman who suffered at the hands of many physicians, who all her money was wasted, and she, had, she was no better. And so the family being critical is how you see Jesus ministering to her. He comes to her and really touches her and interacts with her and heals her, right? And so in James 1.27, you see another aspect of this where we read, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So even in, in the political sphere, they looked at people with suspicion. As Roman citizens especially, they sought to please their various deities, and they saw sickness as an immoral or impious person and a threat to the success of the state. And so sickness and disease and people with those things were more and more treated with contempt. And you probably have this lady dealing with that right there when she comes seeking Jesus. She needs some, some rest from her weariness. So God cares about the vulnerable, the needy, and those without families. And he exhorts his church, his people, to bring his compassion and care to the world around him. So there's a scriptural basis for caring for those who are sick. And during my preparation for this talk, I came across two quotes that greatly encouraged me. And I think tied into this whole idea of God's people following his precepts being a blessing to the world and how God works that out. One was from the plague of Cyprian in AD 250 and another plague in the year of AD 312 to 313. Now, during the plague of Cyprian in AD 250, people were suffering from diarrhea and vomiting, infectious sores in the mouth and eyes, and gangrene of the limbs. During this plague, when most people ran from the sick and left them for dead, Cyprian exhorted Christians to stay in care for victims of the plague, whether they were fellow Christians or whether they were unbelievers. And Dionysius writes an account of the plague. He says this, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The heathens behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their loved ones, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating the unburied corpses as dirt. So what a stark contrast there is between those who knew Christ as Lord and those who didn't in the way they responded to the sick people around them. A similar account from Eusebius, a church historian from the early 300s, offers a similar perspective regarding a plague in the year 312 and 313. He writes, Alone in the midst of this terrible calamity, the Christians proved by visible deeds their sympathy and humanity. All day long, some continued without rest to tend the dying and bury them. Others rounded up the huge number reduced to scarecrows all over the city and distributed loaves to them all. So their praises were sung on every side, and all men glorified the God of the Christians and confessed that they alone were pious and truly religious. Did not their actions speak for themselves? So this is just a small example 
of one practical way in which love for God and his precepts lead to blessings for the, for the world around us and bring glory to God. And there's certainly much more that can be said about medicine in the time of the early church, from the rise of monasteries in the second century and how they were used to develop treatments and medicines and even surgeries, to the majority of hospitals and orphanages around the world today being founded upon a Christian life and worldview. And this love that is shown and care that is given is a practical outworking of a love for neighbor that is rooted in a love for God and a confidence in his promises. And it is a reflection of Christ himself, the great physician, who came from heaven to earth, healing people physically and spiritually. He gave sight to the blind physically and spiritually. He opened the ears of the deaf, deaf physically and spiritually. He healed the lame, cleansed lepers, cast out demons, and raised the dead both physically and spiritually. And so in this brief tour of scripture, an even briefer tour of history, we see that it is God's will for his kingdom and his people to be blessed and to be a blessing to the world around us, both physically and spiritually. As God has promised, he has crushed the head of the serpent and his kingdom is continually going forth and bringing light to drive away the darkness that still abides. And the primary means by which this is realized is through simple faith and obedience to God's word and teaching it to those around us. And I've, I believe Philippians 2, 14 through 16, is a nice conclusion and encouragement in this regard. So we'll end with this. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure Children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine as lights in the world as you hold forth the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Thank you.